pray for me as I uh, preach this message this morning. I, I've been really blessed by the Lord since I've been in California. It's been, uh, this year makes uh, 15 years, I believe, that I've been in California. And uh, the weather has been agreeable to me. I, I have very, very few colds anymore. When I was in Kentucky, I had colds all of the time. But since I came here, I've hardly ever had a cold in 15 years. So I'm not really suffering from a cold, but my throat is bothering me today. So if you'll uh, bear with me just a little bit, if I get uh, dry and thirsty or something here and, and have problems, you'll understand why. I'd like you to open your Bibles, if you would, though, to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 11. And today I'm in the second part of the message that we began last week, entitled The Open Invitation. Now, last Sunday morning, of course, was the first Sunday of the new year. And our subject last week, I think, and this week, is a very appropriate one as we begin this new year of 2012. We are reminded here in Scripture of the love and compassion of Christ for lost sinners, the great desire that he has for their salvation, and just having finished the Christmas season, we we know how gloriously displayed that the gift of God was in sending Jesus Christ into the world to die for our sins, that he was willing to leave the majesty of heaven to divest himself of his glory and to come here to be incarnate, come in the flesh of man and to be born as a baby in Bethlehem. And his purpose, he stated during his ministry, his purpose was to save sinners. Jesus said that was his mission. In Luke 19.10, he said, For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which is lost. And we have in this scripture today, in this 11th chapter of Matthew, just a wonderful invitation where Jesus invites lost sinners to come to him. I'd like you to stand with me, please, as we read God's word. Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse number 25. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for it seemed good in thy sight. All things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knoweth the Son but the Father, neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is is light. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for this gracious invitation that we find in scripture. And Lord, we pray that we would take heed to this. Open up someone's heart to the gospel today. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. This scripture, this group of scriptures, verses 25 down through 30 are present a very perplexing problem in theology. I talked about this a little bit last week. These scriptures cause a great deal of argument among Christians. And the issue that is addressed here by Jesus, two issues really, the divine sovereignty of God in salvation and also the responsibility of people to believe the gospel. On one hand, we have the intention of God to save his elect chosen ones 
and that God supplies all the needs that's all the need necessary to affect their conversion. And then on the other hand, we have the responsibility that God says all person persons must repent of their sins, may they must believe the gospel, and they may freely come to Christ. One side of this presents the impossibility of anyone coming without an act of God. And yet the other side presents an open invitation for all people to come to him to end their rejection of the Savior. And the scriptures teach that if they don't, that it's their own choice to make. They may or they may not, and they are fully responsible for the choice that they make concerning the gospel of Christ. Now that is indeed a very perplexing problem. It's not one that we can actually fully resolve. We can't resolve it by saying that one side of this is true and the other is not. We can't resolve it by saying I'll take one and not take the other because both of these are very clearly taught in the Scripture. In fact, we find in Scripture that often these two sides, the sovereignty of God in salvation and human responsibility to believe the gospel are put side by side in many different passages of Scripture. We find it in this one here. Jesus makes both declarations, and yet there is no attempt by Jesus to resolve the problem of how divine election, divine sovereignty of God matches with human responsibility. We have other scriptures where those two doctrines are put aside. For instance, if you want to read John chapter 6, there you'll find that the scripture teaches the sovereignty of God in drawing sinners to him. And then also there's the responsibility of people to repent and believe. And once again, in John chapter chapter 6, there's no explanation offered to resolve that conflict. Probably one of the strangest in one sense of the word passages of scripture that we have on this and where the conflict is not resolved would be in John chapter 3 and that's where Jesus was speaking to Nicodemus and he told him except you be born again you cannot see the kingdom of God Uh, in that same portion of scripture in the 8th verse of John chapter 3 Jesus made a declaration of the sovereignty of God in salvation when he said that the spirit is just like the wind that blows that you can't see from where the wind comes you can't see it coming you can't see where it goes and he says even so that's the way it is with the spirit of God that he works in whomever he pleases and whenever he pleases That is something that's very clearly taught in the scriptures. God is sovereign in salvation. And yet in that same portion of scripture, we have one of the most famous verses in all the Bible, which will be John 3, 16, where there we are encouraged to believe in Jesus Christ. In John 3, 36, we also have the same admonition for people to believe in Jesus Christ, and by believing, they will have life in his name. And yet... They're seeing the sovereignty of God in one portion of Scripture, seeing human responsibility in the other part of the Scripture. No attempt is made to resolve these two issues. And so the only recourse that we have as people who believe the Bible and believe it implicitly, I believe everything that the Bible has to say, I must believe that both of these doctrines are true and that God alone is responsible to resolve the conflicts that I can't understand. So we have to believe what God says, and these messages are an attempt to present both sides of this as being equally true. Now, in the last message, we covered the first part of that, which is the sovereignty of God. And we dealt with two areas of discussions last week, which involved the biblical teaching of the electing grace of God. First of all, we looked at the pleasure of the sovereign. 
the, the good or the pleasure of our sovereign. And, and that's a subject we just barely were able to touch on last week. It's a multifaceted one. In fact, we could devote many sermons to the explanation of it and give you the fine details, at least what we know of it. But I chose to present it to you in the very simplest of terms, like we find it here in this passage of Scripture. Jesus says in verses 25 and 26 that it is God's choice to hide or reveal the truth to whomever he pleases. Now, he prays there to the Lord of heaven and earth. That's his Father, which in itself is a declaration of the sovereignty of God. And he says, God has hid these things from the wise and prudent, and he has revealed them unto babes. And it says that he did that because it seemed good in his sight. And so there you very clearly see the choice of God, the revelation of him, the revelation of divine truth. It's right here. And it's also true that God has not salvifically, and that simply means revealed in the sense that people can understand in order to believe it, he hasn't revealed that to all people. But there is a sense in which God has revealed himself to all people. He's revealed himself in creation. The creation shouts out the existence of God. But there's no one that can know him personally how to have a relationship with God unless God gives him more light of revelation. And that's what we have in the preaching of the gospel. The understanding of the gospel is for those that God has opened up their hearts to reveal to them the truth to receive it. So Christ is no longer hidden to them. And that happens when God commands the light to shine into their hearts. Now, I'm just barely touching that. And if you want more information on it, I have to refer you to the last discussion and last week's message because we don't have time to go back into it all today. Then the next consideration that we saw in that message was the position of the sinner. Because of our position, the electing grace of God, that is God's choice, is necessary. The Bible teaches that all of us are born in the darkness of sin. We don't know how God works. We don't understand spiritual matters. We are incapable in our own power of doing anything for ourselves. And so the difference between lost sinners and saved sinners is not what we do, but what God does for us. Now, the inability of man is seen in Jesus' selection of words in verse number 25, where he says, God has hid these things from the wise and prudent. And that means that it's impossible to find out God by means of intellect. The wisdom of this world will never lead you to God. A good education won't lead you to God. Superior intelligence won't lead you to God. And that was actually the error of the religionists at the time of Jesus. Both Jews and pagans were wrong about this. They could not know God in their own wisdom. The Jews sought him through the works of the law, through the knowledge of the Mosaic law, through the standard of righteousness that they had established. The Greeks sought him through reason and philosophy. And neither one of those was sufficient to bring them to God. They cannot be saved. No one can be saved by their own intellect. But Jesus points out here that God reveals himself to babes. And that means that God is the one who opens the way of salvation. He opens it to those who come to him not relying on self, but relying on him. And that's why he uses the example of a baby. He has revealed these things to babes. A, a baby is dependent upon his parents for material needs. And so that's like a 
person who wants to be saved or needs to be saved, he's incapable of doing anything for himself in the spiritual world. All of it comes to him from God. We have no righteousness. We have no resources. We are not independent. We are dependent. The Bible teaches that we are spiritually and morally bankrupt. We're dead in trespasses and sin. We have no hope in ourselves. And that's the position that we're in when we're born into the world. That's why salvation has to be out of God's goodness. It must be God's graciousness, his mercy, and his compassion because we have no understanding, no righteous, no resources, nothing in that spiritual realm that would bring us to God. So he has to raise us from our spiritual death and give us spiritual life which is to say that when God does that, that it's not an act of our will that it takes place, but it's an act of God's will. God has to work first, and then and only then can we respond to his gracious invitation. And so our position as being dead sinners makes us totally dependent upon God's electing grace. Now, as I mentioned, there are two sides to this, though. And there's some people that might think, well, here I am, and I'm being kept out of heaven because I am not one of God's elect. I'm not a part of God's election, so I can't go to heaven. Well, that's an objection that some people make. That's an objection that's made usually by people that have some other excuse for believing because they certainly don't understand this properly. Or it's an an objection that's made by people that are saved and and they really don't understand what the scriptures talk about when it speaks of the election of God. No No one evaluates their inclusion or exclusion from salvation on the basis of God's election. And you know why? Because that's a secret that's known only to God. That's in God's mind. And you can trust me, or better said, you can trust God on this, that no matter who you are, that if you want to be saved, you can be saved today. There is an open invitation for every single person to come to Christ. And we find that invitation in these verses. Now, thirdly... Uh, as we talk about something new here today, we're going to take the other side of the question. And I want to talk to you thirdly about the provision of the Savior. And I want to call your attention to the last part of this chapter in which we find some of the most often quoted words spoken by Jesus. The final three verses in the chapter. This is where Jesus says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now there is a gracious invitation that Jesus extends for sinners to come to him, to believe in him. And the placement of this invitation at the end of chapter 11 is significant because it shows us here the desire of Christ and the compassion of Christ that lost sinners would be saved. Now, it's very significant that it's here in this place because Jesus knows at this point of his ministry there's mounting hostility towards him. There's already been rejection of him. He's experienced that. But yet, in spite of that rejection, Jesus opens up his arms and he invites people to come to him. He already knows that it's in the heart of man to reject him. This is why we have a world of lost sinners today. It's why we're meeting in church today and we speak the gospel of Christ and there's so many people out there who don't care. They haven't gone to church. They haven't come to here. They go about their businesses every day just like it's another day and they never think about God. 
Man is in rejection of Jesus Christ. Jesus had experienced that already, and yet, having experienced it, he still invites lost sinners to come to him. And the Apostle Paul echoed the sentiments of Jesus when he spoke the mind of Christ in 1 Timothy chapter 2. He said, I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all goodness or all godliness and honesty, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. There you find the desire that's in God. All men would be saved. And he has made provision by sending his son into the world to die for sins. And that's what reconciles us to God. So that free invitation is offered in the scripture and it's offered many times. A notable example of that would be in the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Isaiah speaks the words of God and he says, Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. And he that hath no money, come ye, buy and eat. Yea, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Wherefore do you spend money for that which is not bread, and, and your labor for that which satisfieth not? Hearken diligently unto me, and eat ye that which is good, and let your soul delight itself in fatness. Incline your ear and come unto me. Hear, and your soul shall live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. The very last words that we read in the Bible in the last chapter of Revelation chapter 22 contain an invitation. I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him that heareth say, come. And let him that is a thirst come. And whosoever will... Let him take of the water of life freely. Jesus issued other invitations, such as in John chapter 7. In the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. And so you find these invitations repeated often in scripture. God has not put any limitations on who may come. The only restriction there is, is how they come. They must come in humility and brokenness, trusting him and him alone for their salvation. In other words, as Jesus says in our text, they must come to him as spiritually dependent babies. Now, I'd like for you to notice some particulars about God's provision of a Savior. First of all, Jesus has the authority to save. The 27th verse said, All things are delivered unto me of my Father. And there is a very important place in Scripture. You might want to underline Father there because that is the first time in the New Testament that Jesus referred to God as his Father. Now, previously, if you remember the instructions that he gave on prayer in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus said, Our Father, our Father, which art in heaven. Now, here he changes that, and the Jews understood this change because they knew what he meant when he said, My Father, because there he's not talking about in a generic sense, such as God is the Father of all believers, but rather when Jesus says, My Father, it's a very specific statement about his deity, 
that God the Father has appointed him to be the Savior of the world. He was sent into the world to save, and God has given him the authority to effect that salvation upon men. Jesus said in Matthew 28, verse 18, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Remember here in Matthew how Jesus demonstrated his power? He demonstrated power in casting out demons. That showed that he had power over Satan. He had authority over the physical state of man because he was able to heal men of diseases that were impossible, like leprosy and giving sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf. He demonstrated his authority over nature by calming a storm on the Sea of Galilee. He demonstrated his authority in the spiritual world by forgiving the sins of the paralytic man that was let down through the roof in Matthew chapter 9. And that was his authority to save sinners. People are invited to come to him because only God can forgive sins and Christ is God. He's the only one that can forgive sins. There is no authority given to anyone else to save people. And if you look there at verse number 27 again, Jesus says that no one knows the Son but the Father, and no one knows the Father but Christ and those that Christ reveals himself to. Now there you find another statement of God's sovereignty and salvation. Christ is revealed only to those that God chooses to reveal himself to. But that's also another statement that the only way that a person can make it to God, the only person, way a person can be right with God is to come through Jesus Christ. And we see it spoken over and over in Scripture. No one will be saved without Christ. There are no other paths to God. And so if you reject Jesus, you reject the only path that there is to God. Now, folks, what that does is to exclude all other religions of the world as a means of salvation. Now, that's hard to get across to people today, and they don't see it this way. They think that God is whoever you think that he is, that your path to God is as good as any path, and your path is your choice. All paths lead to God. Well, very clearly, all ways are not equal. Proverbs says, There is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be that go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way, which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. The straight gate, that simply means the restricted gate. There's only one way to get through that. There's only one doorway to heaven, and that's Jesus. He said, I am the door. And that means that he's the only way to eternal life. All authority is given to him. Secondly, Jesus has the ability to save. In the 28th verse, it says, Jesus said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. That means he's the one who's able to lift the burden of sin. And he says, I will give you this rest, meaning that I have the power to enable you to enter into my rest. What is it that you think he meant by rest? Well, that's a word that actually represents our final salvation. I'd like you to turn, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 3. And here the writer speaks of rest. And if you'll turn there for a moment, we're going to see that he's speaking of Moses and the children of Israel when they came out of Egypt. They were on their way to the promised land. They were going to the land of Canaan, and the land of Canaan is called rest. So we start with verse 7 in Hebrews 3. 
Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation, in the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me and proved me and saw my works forty years. Wherefore, I was grieved with that generation and said, They do always err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swear in my wrath they shall not enter into my rest. Take heed, therefore, or take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Then you go down to verse number 16. For some, when they had heard, did provoke, howbeit not all that came out of Egypt by Moses. But with whom was he grieved forty years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believed not? So we see they could not enter in because of unbelief. There, we see that unbelief is what kept the people from rest. The rest was in the land of Canaan, and Canaan in Scripture is emblematic of salvation of the Christian life. Egypt is a symbol of the bondage to sin, and so when people came out of the bondage of sin in Egypt, they would receive their freedom in Canaan. That's where their rest was. But because of their unbelief, many of them died in the wilderness. And our text here says that Jesus is able to provide that rest, the, the, the rest that they missed, the salvation that comes from him. He has the ability to give rest to people that come to him for salvation. Now, I want to go on and look at this invitation a little bit further because in these scriptures, we also find the plan of salvation. And if you look at it very carefully... You'll find it here. The plan of salvation is necessary to salvation. The way of rest is found here. What must we do to be saved or to find rest? Do you remember that was a question that was asked specifically in that way in Acts chapter 6? The Philippian jailer asked Paul and Silas, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Well, strangely enough, that question is answered in various ways in Scripture, depending upon the way that it's asked. And there, there's no variation in the method of salvation, but it's described in different ways, depending upon how it's asked. So if we were planted down here in Matthew chapter 11, and we were standing in front of Jesus, and we were able to ask this question, Jesus, what must I do to be saved? Here's how he would answer the question. Come unto me. All ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's what we must do to be saved. He invites people to come. And the ones that he invites has a presupposed disposition. They labor. They are heavy laden. And that laboring is over the burden of sin. They're carrying this awful weight of sin and guilt, and they're unable to remove it. They can't bear up under that terrible weight of sin. And so we have here a first step in having that weight removed, and that is repent to repent of sin, repentance from sin. The first step is actually to recognize that you are a sinner, that you are laboring under a burden, and you've done everything that you can in order to be made right with God. And the sweat and the toil and the laboring and the pursuing and the working, you've done all of that, and yet for all of it, you've never found peace. The guilt is still there. Your conscience still bothers you. There is no sense that you have any relief from your burden. 
You understand that this is what actually drives people to the cross of Christ? It's the recognition, finally, that they are sinners. And they've tried everything that they can do. They've worked as hard as they can, but they still have this weight on their back. And religion actually adds to that weight. Someone might have said to you, well, you can have rest. You can be saved by keeping rituals. If you'll just say your Hail Marys, or if you'll say Our Father... Someone might have told you that you could have rest if you go into the confessional, and there you'll be given a list of acts of penance that you can do for sin. But does that ever relieve your burden? It doesn't. It's the same as the scribes and the Pharisees who kept telling the people, you can have rest, you can know God, you can be saved if you just keep this law, and if you'll keep that law, if you'll keep this ritual and do that one, do this over here and do that over there, then you'll have rest for your soul. And the people found out there was no rest in that at all. Instead, that was an addition to the laws of God that made it ever so much harder to feel that they had been relieved of a burden. And that's what the law of God always does. It's not intended to relieve our burdens from us. You can't be saved by the keeping of commandments. The law of God is given to show us how far that we have sunk in our depravity. It shows us how imperfect that we are, how utterly helpless that we are. To do anything that God requires. We can't do it. And so you realize that burden of sin. And when people realize it, that's what causes the misery. They're sinners and they admit it. And that's when they come to God in repentance. When everything that you've tried has failed. When you've come to the end of all of your resources and found it's not enough. That's when you come to Christ with repentance. And repentance is part of the gospel message. If you just look back a few verses to verse 21, Jesus said, Woe unto thee, Chorazin, woe unto thee, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. John the Baptist preached repentance. Jesus preached repentance. On the day of Pentecost, when 3,000 people were saved, Peter said, They asked, first of all, what must we do? And Peter said, repent. He said, be baptized, every one of you, for the remission of your sins. Paul preached the same in Athens. There he said, God has commanded all men everywhere to repent. And so when will you repent? It's when you have such a great desire to get rid of your burden that you will, through your coming to God, allow him in his mercy and his grace to come down and lift your burden from off of you. When will you do it and how will you do it? Well, next is another part of God's plan, and that is faith in the Savior. Jesus said, come. What does he mean by come? How do you come? Well, there's not one of us that has ever seen Jesus. We can't approach him and talk to him face to face. So what does he mean when he tells us to come to him? Well, it's a word that simply means to believe. In the passage that we read earlier in Isaiah, God says, Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come you to the waters. And what does he mean? He means, believe me, trust in me. Jesus often used other synonyms for unbelief when he talked about thirst and when he talked about hunger. He spoke to the woman at the well, and he said, If you'll just ask me for water, I'll give you living water. And he said, If you drink in my water you'll never thirst again. What did he mean? Will you follow the passage down further in John 4? Jesus comes to the point that he says, Woman, believe me. Many times we see that in Scripture. If you don't want to hunger, if you don't want to thirst, then come. 
And that's speaking of spiritual hunger and thirst. He says, come. He means believe in me. And that's what it takes. You must repent of your sins and you must believe in Jesus Christ. William MacDonald pointed out the many different ways that coming to Christ and is expressed in scripture he says to come means to believe acts 16:31 to receive john 1:12 to eat john 6:35 to drink john 7:37 to look isaiah 45:22 to confess 1 john 4:2 to hear john 5:24 and 25 to enter a door john 10:9 to open a door revelation 3:20 to touch the hem of his garment matthew 9:20 and 21 and to accept the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, Romans six twenty three, To come means to believe. But I want you to notice a third element in salvation. If you'll look at verse 29, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. Jesus said, Take my yoke upon you. Now what is that? Well, this is acceptance of submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ. A saving response to the gospel is one in which you commit yourself to his lordship. Now, that seems so fundamental. It's so easy because it's right here included in this invitation. And we wonder why is it that there are some people who say, well, no, that's adding something to the gospel. And they'll say, you don't have to submit to Christ's lordship. You may or you may not. It may come later or it might not. All you really need to do, repent and believe, and that's the end of it. And what they fail to see is that true repentance and faith have this element of surrender. In other words, I'm telling you today that you can't be saved unless you're willing to claim the Lord as the Lord of your life. That's your yoke. You must accept that yoke. You come under his authority and rule. You've tried your way. So what makes you think that you could be saved and say, well, to Christ, well, I'll take you. I will repent. I will believe. I'll take you. But I do not want your yoke. Do you understand what a yoke is? A yoke is put on an animal to put him to work. You put a yoke on an animal, you subject him to the yoke, or you put an ox or a horse in that yoke, and you fit that to the animal, and that keeps the animal in submission. A yoke was often used in Jewish thought to symbolize submission. When a student was under the tutelage of a, of a master rabbi, the student was said to be in the yoke of the master. And Jesus uses that as a part of the invitation. He doesn't say, come all that labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke or don't take my yoke. You'll still get rest. Just come to me and I'll give it to you. Now we see here that rest is only procured when you repent and believe and you accept that yoke that Christ puts on you. It means that you're willing to come under his authority, to come under his teaching. He says here, learn of me. And that same Greek word that's used to translate learn here is the same one that we find that's used for disciple. It's translated as disciple. Non-lordship people say you can be a Christian and you can be saved, but you don't have to be a disciple of Jesus. Well, not according to this scripture, because here we find one fluid motion that stands or falls together. Repent, believe, and submit to him. And it's that way because repentance and faith includes submission to Christ as Lord. Now, obviously, there are some people that will say, well, that sounds awfully hard. 
Sounds awfully hard to be a Christian and repent, believe, submit myself, obey Christ's commandments. You mean I have to live like a Christian? Do you mean that's a part of salvation? That seems awfully hard. And if you go back and you reread Matthew chapter 10, you'll find, just out, find out just how hard it is. And it's not something that anyone would ever take upon themselves except for one thing. And that is God has changed your heart. You see, when you're unsaved, you have no desire for the gospel of Christ. There's no desire to live a Christian life. You don't want the ridicule. You don't want the persecution. You don't want the rigors. You don't want the suffering that goes along with being a Christian. You'll have no part of that. There's no desire for it. But you notice verse number 30, you think it's hard. You think it's difficult to be a Christian. Yet Jesus says in the 30th verse, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The burden that Jesus gives us, and so to speak, in one sense of the word, is far better than the yoke of sin that we've been laboring under. His burden is light. And do you know why that Christ's yoke is easy and the burden is light? There's only one reason, and that is because when you are yoked, you are yoked to him. And what he has agreed to do is to carry the burden for you. This is what you do. You come to him, and he lifts the burden from you. He carries it for you. Well, how did that contrast to what the scribes and the Pharisees offered? They offered nothing but an oppressive weight. Jesus said in Matthew 23, For they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne, and lay them on men's shoulders. But they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. They kept piling it on and piling it on and piling it on. And that's what religion does. It keeps adding to the burdens. Keep the commands. And these Pharisees and the scribes and the Pharisees, they added all this and they said, keep the commands. And then they rebuked the people when they didn't. And what does that do? It doesn't do anything but add to the guilt. So they have nothing to offer. They would not help them with their burdens. Do you see what Jesus is trying to say with that? That these scribes and Pharisees that offered nothing but religion have no help with the burden. They don't offer you any help with the burden. But when you come to Jesus Christ, it's different. You take his yoke and he bears the burden for you. Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 5, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. You see this? Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. You know what that is? It is submission. Humble yourself to God. Cast all of your cares, all of these problems that you have, everything that's weighting you down, all of those sins that beset you, that are on you, for, have been on you for so long throughout your life. Cast them all upon him, and he carries the load for you. Friends, that's what salvation is. That's God's rest. And it comes to you when you repent and believe and surrender yourself to him. This is Christ's invitation. Now, some of you, I don't know, you might have been worried last week about God's sovereignty. And some people are really afraid of God's election. Do you wonder if you're going to be kept out of heaven by God's election? Well, if you ask that question, then you have this part of Scripture to help balance you out. Because here we have Christ's invitation. He says, all you need to worry about is coming to me. All you need to concern yourself with is believing me, trusting me, come to me and I'll give you rest. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, 
and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. This is such an important scripture for this time of year, because now, in this year of 2012, it's time for us to go out and tell people about this. If you have been saved, if the burden has been lifted from you, then go and tell somebody else how they can have their burden lifted. It's no different than what happened to you. The same steps that you went through, the same thing that happened to you, can happen to them. Just give them the gospel of Christ, and their burdens can be lifted as well. Tell them about this invitation that Jesus has offered. Come to me, and I'll give you rest. Tell it to anybody you want to tell it to. And the promise is here in the word of God that if you'll come to him, he will give you rest. He will give you his salvation. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and this wonderful invitation that Jesus has given us here We can't reconcile all of this in our own minds. We don't understand about how we have the sovereignty of God and salvation and the choice of salvation is totally upon you, Father, as our Savior and God. And yet, we also know this, that you've opened up your arms and said, if you will come to me, this rest is provided, the salvation is provided, all that you need to do is just believe. So, Lord, we pray that people understand today repentance and belief and and submission to you is all in this package that we have here our repentance and faith includes our submission to you that's a part of real understanding and lord when we do this the burden is lifted from us open up someone's heart to the gospel to understand this today lord we pray for lost sinners and we pray for our people that are saved that we might give this message to the world that's around us dying in sin So many people with a burden on them that they just don't know how to get out from under. Lord, show them that. Show them how they can be saved. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.